What does it take to create something that never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? What does it take to change the world? This is The Swell Podcast. We're passionate about story, experience, and designing culture, but ultimately how an idea swells into a movement. Take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those three questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who've ventured out into the unknown on a personal journey to do something novel, innovative, creative, or disruptive. In today's episode, we chat with Steve Clayton, the chief storyteller at Microsoft, in which he shares some pretty fantastic stories about how he landed at Microsoft, became the chief storyteller, and then his perspective on story, culture, and change, and the role they play on each other. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, sign up to our newsletter at theswellpod.com, and get in on the conversation through all of the major socials at The Swell Pod. Our first season is made in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space solutions for teams and individuals. Their all-inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Steve, uh, to the Swell Podcast. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for, for meeting with us. Um, I want to kick it off, and I know you've done this probably plenty of times before, uh, but I would love to hear about the story about your your job, um, a job that didn't really exist for you specifically. And then a few years later, I think it was probably maybe 10, 15 years later, a position that didn't exist prior to the one, the title that you took on. So I'd love to hear those two stories briefly. Yeah, I, um, I think I assume you mean the first one being the story of how I ended up at Microsoft. Um, Absolutely. Which is kind of a ridiculous story, uh, but this, I'll try and do the short version of it. So I should start by saying it's just nice to be here, Spencer and Josh, and get the chance to chat with you. And uh, you know, I love talking about stories. So I'll give you two quick ones. The first one is I joined Microsoft in 97, so coming up on 23 years ago. And before that, I worked for a, a customer of Microsoft in the UK called Zeneca, now called AstraZeneca. Um, some of you may know them. They're working on, you know, one of the, hopefully one of the COVID vaccines right now. Um, and at AstraZeneca, we worked a lot with Microsoft. We used a lot of Microsoft technology. And so I knew the team at Microsoft UK really well and actually used to, a small group of us from Zeneca used to visit Microsoft UK about once a month and spend a day or two at the Microsoft headquarters in the UK, just getting to know technology and obviously got to know the people quite well. And about three years into my job at Zeneca, I got a phone call one day in the office and I picked up the phone and the voice on, and I said, hi, it's Steve. And the voice on the other end said, Steve, it's, uh, it's Paul from Microsoft. And I didn't know Paul that well, but I, we sort of knew each other a little. And he said, um, Hey, we're not supposed to do this, but you know, I was wondering if you'd be interested in applying for a job at Microsoft. He's like, I think there's a really cool job that would suit you. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm flattered by the invitation and I, I'm really interested. So he said, okay, well, obviously keep it quiet. Um, I'll put you in touch with the HR department and we'll see where it goes. So a couple of months later, a whole lot of interviews later, I got offered the job at Microsoft and I accepted it. And I told, um, obviously told my manager, uh, and Zeneca and said, you know, I was resigning. I was going to take this job at Microsoft. So all of my friends and my, the team I worked with at Zeneca knew I was going to leave to go work at Microsoft. 
And all of my friends at Microsoft, you know, got to know that I was going to be joining Microsoft. So I had one month of sort of leave period uh, to, to work through at Zeneca, just wrapping up projects and things. And um, in that last month, we had one of these regular visits to the Microsoft office. So a group of us go down to the Microsoft office. We spend a day with the team. Uh, I'm still working at Zeneca at this point. Spend the day with the team, and then we go off as you do. You know, at the end of the day, certainly in the UK, you go to the pub and you have a few drinks and you, you know, you chew the fat. And so we stood in the pub, myself and this other guy I worked with from Zeneca, who's also called Steve. And the door to the pub opens. It's this great little pub. It's called the Bull in Sonning on the River Thames. Lovely little place. The door to the pub opens, and in walks Paul, who made the original phone call, and who had not actually been involved in any of the interview process at all. Paul walks in, walks straight up to the two of us at the bar, stretches out his hand to offer it to the other Steve to shake his hand and says, congratulations on the job. And the other Steve looks at him and looks at me, points at me and says, I think you mean him. And at that point, Paul realized in the instant that he'd, you know, he'd phoned the wrong Steve, but worse than that, they'd hired the wrong Steve. <laughs> um, and so we sort of made a little bit of a pact there to, you know, let's keep that quiet because it didn't reflect great on either of us or it certainly didn't reflect well on him. And um, I kept it quiet for about 18 years. And a, a few years ago, I was invited to speak at our global HR conference in front of 1,500 HR leaders at Microsoft and decided this was the time to unload the wrong Steve story, as I call it. And uh, it was it was quite a surprise for them. But... Turns out, it, uh, I think it's turned out well for them and well for me. And then the second story uh, that you're referring to, Spencer, is the job I now have. So I started at the company as a technical salesperson in the UK, which means I, I spent most of my time in the city of London and also Edinburgh, uh, funnily enough, talking to large customers about Microsoft technology. And so the, um, it's very far away from the job I currently have. But about, I would say, 10 or 12 years into that job, I, I began to write a blog about the company because I was just frustrated with the public perception of Microsoft at the time and naively thought, well, I can just change that and I'll write a blog and tell great stories about how terrific a company this really is. And that blog gained some notoriety and some followership. And every now and then there was, you know, I would say something controversial on there that wasn't always complimentary about the company. And it called the attention of the PR departments for Microsoft in our Seattle headquarters so much so that a little over 10 years ago, the, the guy who runs communications for the entire company, runs PR, phoned me up. I was at home on a Tuesday evening in London and he phoned me up and this guy's name is Frank Shaw. And Frank said, Steve, I'd love to talk to you about your blog. And I thought, well, here we go. I'm going to get fired um, because, you know, every now and then my blog would, would capture their attention in a way that was not always great. And on the contrary, Frank, I, I said, so what do you want to know about the blog, Frank? And he said, I love your blog and I love what you do. And I think you should come and do that as a full-time job in my team in Seattle. And to cut a long story short, that's what I did 10 years ago. I moved to Seattle to take on a role, which has now become known as the chief storyteller for Microsoft. Um, and that has grown into leading a team of about 40 people who do storytelling inside and outside of the company through a variety of different mechanisms. So basically two uh you know two sort of happy accidents got me to where i am that's that's so awesome <laughs> i i'm and i remember when we talked um a few months ago how important it is to maybe take risks in your career right and that's what maybe you know 
if you're not potentially taking a risk of being fired every year, then maybe you're doing something wrong. And I think that might be one of them, right? Writing those blogs, writing the those those truthful stories that would create and trigger great conversations is one of those moments. Um, I'd like to know at some point uh, through this conversation, any other risks you've taken, right? Uh, maybe more recently. Um, but let me take you back to the, to the like where your story, kind of love of story, maybe it wasn't a love at, at the beginning, uh, but even way back in maybe, I don't know whether it's childhood, school, first job, maybe it was only it started at Microsoft, but could you, can you map it back now when you think backwards? Yeah, I definitely can. And I thought about this, I think it was probably five or six years ago, I gave a, uh, so I'm originally from Liverpool in the UK, um, you know, home of the world's greatest football team, uh, obviously. And, um, and I sort of map it back to growing up in Liverpool. I was invited, what I was going to say is about five or six years ago, a friend of mine runs TEDx in Liverpool. And he asked me to come and talk at TEDx. And specifically, it asked me to talk about this journey, the, the title of the talk ended up being the journey from Liverpool to Seattle, which I really didn't want to talk about. But Herb Kim, who's a great friend, he's like, no, I think people would find it really interesting. And it forced me to think about how did I end up where, I, where I've gotten to at this stage. And I ended up um, basically creating my TED talk for one person in the audience. There were about 500 people at this TED event, but my nephew was uh, who was 13 at the time. And I thought, what sort of wisdom, if anything, maybe it's not wisdom, but just advice can I give him? And I wrapped it up in a few things. One was to say, you know, figuring out as early as you can in life what it is you were put on the planet to do and then being able to turn that into your job is the surest sign that you'll have a job you're going to enjoy for the rest of your life. And I like to say I get paid to do my hobby. And basically, I figured out as much as I love technology and talking about technology with customers, what the, the signal for me was I was spending my evenings and my weekend and any spare time writing this blog about the company. And that was just this sign to say, that's what you really, really love. That's what you care about. If you're prepared to give up you know, hours that you would normally spend with your family or you're working late into the night, then that, that is a sure sign that it's your passion. And so I thought about that and said, well, where did that come from? And I grew, I just, I grew up around a lot of great storytellers. You know, I remember sitting around, you know, my grandparents' house and my uncle and aunt's houses and just listening to them tell stories because Liverpool is full of great storytellers. It has a rich history of them. And so I think I had this, and, and I remembered back, you know, when I was at school, um, certainly up until, you know, the age of about 15, my favorite class was English. I just loved language. I'm not a great writer by any stretch as in a, from a technical capability, but I, um, I think I can, I, I know the signs of a good story. And so that TED talk ended up being this mix of, um, you know, these lessons of figuring out what it is you're really passionate about, recognizing an opportunity when it presents itself to you, um, and taking risks. And those were the, the sort of three things I tried to package up as my advice. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too. Um, so I think your journey has kind of taken you to, um, from what I understand, a, a lot of mixture between, so your passion with story and then also its association with culture and, and, and the shift in culture, right, at, at Microsoft, which is really interesting to me. Um, and I kind of want get to in, get into that, but I'm also interested in like, um, you're, you're the first person that I've heard of with the title of chief storyteller, which is really interesting. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think, 
I, I've, I've heard you talk to this idea of like this shift in, in story, even just on LinkedIn, right? And, and I'm wondering if you can kind of talk to that a little bit, like what, what changes have you seen in relationship to how people view stories and, and how they're looking at it within the workplace or, or within their careers? Yeah, I think the, when I give a presentation on storytelling, I often use this cartoon that a great friend of mine, Hugh McLeod, drew. And it says, uh, you know, welcome to nobody cares, population 6 billion, and it should say 7 billion. And basically what Hugh was trying to say with that cartoon is, you know, nobody gives a crap. Like, because our, and what he really meant was, we now live in this world where our attention is under attack. Like, you, you know, you get up in the morning and whether you like it or not, certainly in the world where we were all going to our workplace, by the time you got to the workplace, you were, you'd been bombarded with roughly 20 gigabytes of data or information, but certainly not stories. And that's, you know, TV, radio, billboards, magazines, adverts, podcasts, like it's just our attention is constantly under attack. And I think against that backdrop, what you've seen is this rise of um, people investing and rediscovering storytelling as a way to uh, it sort of combat the dopamine hit that we get from um, you know, social media or data, or all of these things trying to capture our attention. Um, and that's what stories don't do. You know, stories done well capture your imagination more than your attention. And they, they stick with you and you retell them and you embellish them and you pass them on. And, you know, that's the heritage of storytelling since people sat around campfires and told stories because they had nothing else to do. And on the LinkedIn piece, it's really fascinating that we, um, Microsoft um, now owns LinkedIn and one of the pieces of research LinkedIn did a few years ago is they looked at you know, certain professions and the rise of professions. And seven years ago, there was nobody on LinkedIn that had storytelling, like literally zero that had storytelling in the professional skill set on LinkedIn. As of three years ago, the last time they did the research, there was 570,000 people who were saying they're storytellers. Personally, I don't think they all are because there's a lot of people who are jumping on the bandwagon. Um, but that's why I think storytelling has become this important topic again because we um we we need it's, it's a quest to capture people's imagination rather than distract their attention yeah i love that can i ask you uh, josh you've got a question but how did you get the title did you give it yourself and kind of and then it no. you know people ran with it no no there's a story behind that so not um i mean there's a story behind everything uh <laughs> But the, the way that happened is I, so I moved to Seattle in July, 2010, and I'd always been fascinated by the consumer electronics show in Las Vegas that always runs in January. And I, I'd always wanted to go. I was like, God, that would be a milestone for me to get to go to the consumer electronics show. So I arrived in Seattle in the in mid July, 2010. And I started doing my work as like a spokesperson and a blogger and an evangelist for the company, a storyteller for the company. And the team I worked with, the PR team, they said, hey, one of the things we want you to do this year, this coming January, is go to CES and be there as a spokesperson for the company to talk about innovation and represent the company. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. I get to go to CES. And they said, you know, we're going to pitch you to some media outlets to go talk about Microsoft. And I said, great. And they said, well, you know, what should we tell them your job title is? And I said, well, just tell them I'm Steve, you know, blogger for Microsoft. And they're like, oh, they're like, they're like that's not going to sell it. They say, you know, everyone's a blogger these days. And they said, well, how about we call you the chief storyteller? I was like, that, I like the sound of that. That's good. <laughs> and so we went with that and it's stuck ever since. Yeah. That's brilliant. 
That's amazing. I, I, I love the theme in some of your stories. Like I'm piecing together the theme of, uh, of the, like kind of like these, these happy accidents and like being in the right place at the right time. It's really interesting. And so can I, I have another story I need to tell you on that before. Yes, I yeah. it's in my, and I was thinking about it with, um, when I talked about TEDx, I was getting ready to do this TEDx presentation and I was sat in a, in a, in a pub in, in, on our campus in Seattle, you know, all good stories start and end in a pub is another theme you'll find from me. But I was sat in this pub on campus, uh, with a guy I used to work with, or he used to be in my team in the UK, this guy called John. And we just got together for a beer and I got talking about this TEDx talk. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about what I should put in my talk, John. And I said, you, he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to say to people like, you know, I just, I just been really lucky in my journey and he got really quite pissed off at me. And he's like, you haven't been lucky at all. And he said, you have this phrase that really stuck with me and it ended up in my presentation. And he says, luck is where hard work meets opportunity. And I just, I love that because it's, it's too easy. I think um, for us to, to sort of dismiss the hard work that we do and say, Oh, well, I just got lucky. And, you know, sure enough, there are times when you, you know, you run into the right person in an elevator, and it creates your next job. And there's an element of luck in that. But I love that phrase of, you know, luck is where hard work meets opportunity. It really sort of captured it for me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love that. And um, it's interesting because I think even going back to, um, I would say this idea that 550,000 people have the uh, story in their title, right? And I, I, I'd be interested in kind of unpacking this idea about what story actually means to you. Um, because I think to a lot of people, you know, at least maybe, you know, a lot of people think of story as, as, as simply the words that we, that we share and they usually start with a beginning, middle and an end. But I've, I've heard some of your presentations and I've, you know, I, I understand, you know, you talk about behavior and symbols and, and I've seen coffee cups and I've seen, you know, various things that you've used. Right. And, and, each time you talk to those things, you represent them as a story. And, and I think unpacking the idea of how you, how you look at stories beyond words would, would be pretty interesting, I think, to help, to help people who might just typically think of stories as, as once upon a time and, and a whole bunch of conflict and, and, and growth and then the end, you know? I don't know. I, to be honest, though, I think at, at the heart, like, good stories are that. There are a couple of things that I would say are fundamental, like, any really good story has people in it or a mm -hmm. person or people. And, you know, I, I sort of lost count of the amount of times people inside of the company or people I work with have come along and said, Hey, we want to tell a story about this product. It's like, it doesn't work like that. Um, and that's not to say that you can't do great marketing around a product, but I draw this distinction between stories and, and marketing and I'm not saying one is better than the other. But I, I think, you know, to your last point there, Josh, I do think at the heart, it's about people who've gone on a journey and there's some tension or conflict and then some outcome, which can be good or bad. And really that's, um, that's sort of the, the essence of every great story. And then you have these different vehicles that you can tell a story through, whether it's a coffee cup or a video or an infographic or a blog post or a speech. And, you know, those, some of those vehicles can, uh, can dilute or give the impression of diluting something down from being a story, but, you know, even the, the work that we did around these coffee cups, which is one of my favorite devices we've used to tell stories, there was still a story behind it. And there were, there were literally sort of stories on, on these coffee cups. But 
I think the reality remains that, you know, if you just, you think about the story I told right at the start around, you know, getting this accident of getting the job, there were people in the story, there was a little bit of tension around, you know, is, is, is Steve going to get this job? And when he does get the job, oh my God, it's actually not his job. It's somebody else's job. And then there's an outcome, which is, you know, it turned out quite well for me. Incidentally, Steve Clark, the other Steve in that story, he's still at Zeneca. He ironically works in the HR department there. Um, but I think, I think there's, um, at times there can be this desire to want to make stories and storytelling more complex than it is to create this mystique around it. But it's really not. I mean, most of us are telling stories all the time. And the example, again, I'll go back to my pub. You know, if we were to meet up in the pub and we hadn't seen each other for a while, you would come in and you would, you would say things like, oh my God, Steve, let me tell you about this book I read or let me tell you about this journey I went on or let me tell you about this movie I saw or let me tell you about this person I met. Every single one of those statements is the beginning of a story versus if you came into the pub and said, oh my God, I've got some data to tell you. You know, we'd, we'd walk out and we wouldn't stick around in the pub because people don't, just don't talk that way. People are like, we are genetically designed to tell stories, to consume stories and to, uh, to re-deliver stories. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I like that. Well, sorry. Um... I was just going to, so I, I'd be interested <laughs> to know, because I, I know you're passionate about curiosity. Um, when I think about stories, I, I am inherently passionate about curiosity as well. I think it's interesting, you know, when you think about, would you say that curiosity is probably one of the most important things when it comes to a story or, or yeah, I mean, kind of. Yeah, I think it's the number curiosity. one skill. Yeah. Like yeah. when we say, I've, I've adjusted my, um, my view on it a little bit, like literally in the last few weeks, because, you know, reasonably often I get asked like, what do you, when you're hiring people for the team that you have, which is an amazing collection of storytellers, what is it? that you look for and the core skill, there's sort of some core skills that are functional skills around, hey, we want people who can write really well. But the sort of um, the softer skill that we always prioritize is curiosity and it's just natural curiosity. And then I, I've sort of adapted that a little bit recently and said the combination of curiosity with courage, I think is important. And it comes back to that risk taking is having the curiosity to be an, be an investigative journalism, uh, have an investigative journalism mindset about life in some ways, but then having the courage to say, hey, we're gonna go and tell this story and sometimes tell it in a way that people don't expect because back to the vehicles and the platforms, it's, you can have a great story that will capture people's imagination, but it's still a really, really busy world. And sometimes you need to ally that story with a device or a vehicle that captures their, captures their attention and draws them in to capture their imagination. It's interesting because I, I agree with that curiosity and courage. I think that there's a, there's an element probably of vulnerability. It's within that courage as well. I think, you know, truthful and honest stories, in addition to, you know, being courageous enough to hold back the right information long enough until somebody's will, you know ready to hear it, right? And I think keep that anticipation going through your story. I think is interesting. And then I I I'm, I guess if you were to kind of partner up, you know stories with with I think the transformation that you guys went with uh, went through at Microsoft right and I think you know when you think about the the culture shift that you guys went through how how do you look at stories and their ability to to actually cause an effective change uh, within, within within organizations like do you how, how do you associate those two things together and 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 even like it'd be interesting I guess to know yeah uh, 
yeah, I guess just your mindset in terms of stories and their ability to affect change within organizations or, or things like that. Yeah, I think there were a few things. Um, it's been on my mind a bit this week from something I was reading yesterday around, you know, purpose. And I think what Microsoft, the, the foundational piece in some ways of Microsoft's sort of cultural transformation over the last six plus years has been a, around rediscovering or restating the purpose and the mission literally the mission statements of the company, which is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. And in doing that, it gave us this, um, this arena to really tell stories that began to illuminate that mission, where in the past, we might have been telling stories around, oh my God, we want people to know about Windows or Xbox mm. or Office or Skype. And we still want to do those things. But really what, what a lot of that journey was about is helping people understand or re-understand like why does microsoft even exist and here's why we exist on the planet is to help people achieve more and it's not just big organizations it's small organizations it's individuals it's every person and every organization on the planet and so that probably the most profound thing that for me has changed at microsoft in the last six plus years is this mission statement and it seems incredibly simple and easy now we'll go back and look at it but it was quite a journey to get to that but then it became this incredible uh, force that allowed us to say, you know, we're, we're going to go and tell, we're going to, the work that we're going to go and do, not just in our storytelling, but in our products and our engineering and how we run the company is all in service of that mission. Um, that's probably the, the, the best way I can describe it. There's lots of other pieces to it around how we then went about um, telling stories and the types of stories that we told and, you know, a real embrace from the leadership of the company around stories. And then I think there's also, um, you mix into that sort of symbols, um, symbology around storytelling and semiotics, and then you mix in folklore as well, is that, you know, there's a lot of Microsoft, a 45-year-old company, so not that old as companies go, but relatively old as a tech company goes. And there's a lot of great history and folklore. And um, I would say that what the mission helped us to do is to rediscover the soul of the company. And that's like literally why I'm still at this company 23 years on is we're finally in a position where I get to do what I was trying to do sort of humbly back in the UK 15 years ago is help people understand the soul of this company. And now we have this mission statement that basically is an invitation to say, help people understand the soul of the company. Yeah. It's the last, the last question I'll ask along this line, but I think it's interesting because um, I love that the story and the soul of the company. And I think when you think about like, if I think about stories, I think about like, uh, you know, okay. So you've got your, I, I love the sub, the context of being able to tell it around the mission. And, and I think that there are very large stories that encompass the mission. And then there's probably like daily stories in which people are living the mission. And you've got this really incredible example and story that you, that you tell about a photo that you guys took in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I, I won't say it, I'll let you say it. But in my mind, when I, when I heard you talk about that picture, I felt like whether I had worked at Microsoft or whether I was uh, a customer of Microsoft or I've never heard of Microsoft, right? But now I am because of this picture and what that represents. Like, how could you not believe in that mission? You know, that's the, the, the just the image, the story within the image, I think is so powerful. But I, I don't know, would you mind just kind of sharing that with, with, with the audience, kind of what that picture was and what it meant for your company? Yeah, I think... 
just before I do that, you sort of reminded me of something else, Josh, is, you know, it's, I'm sure you and folks listening have read or are students of Simon Sinek's work. And it is all about the why, right? People buy into the why you do things, not the what you do or not even the product. Um, and I think that is increasingly true as you look at, you know, the, the generation who are joining the workforce now, the things that they join companies for are dramatically different. Like I, you know, I'm, I'll be honest about it. Like I joined partly, well, I wanted to work for Microsoft. I thought it was a great company, but the things that I valued when I joined the company 23 years ago were, you know, the salary and the benefits and did I get a company car and things have changed. Thank God. Like people join because it's like, what is, what is your contribution to the planet? Um, is, you know, is, I think it's a really, really great shift in the way people think about companies. And so, you know, the, the photograph you're talking about was taken on July 29th, 2015 in a village in Nanyuki uh, in Kenya, a village called Nanyuki, I should say, in Kenya. Um, and the photograph shows uh, the principal of the school, uh, the Kakawa Public School, with a student of hers, the principal is Beatrice, the student was uh, Tabitha. And it's uh, the backdrop of the photograph is a sort of a mountainous region in the back um, with some clouds on top of the mountain about 15 kilometers away. And then next to them is this sort of awkward looking radio mast with a set of cables and wires connected to it. And July 29, 2015 was the day that Microsoft launched Windows 10, which is a big day for a company like ours because it's a huge, big product for us. And on that day, you know, the CEO, Satya, uh, a few weeks before he'd said, hey, let's use this day to celebrate Windows 10, but let's also use this day to bring this uh, mission of ours to life as a company. And so we ended up in this field taking this photograph. I was stood there with a photographer, a guy called Platon, who's an amazing photographer and Satya. And we were telling the story about the radio mast actually uh, had some technology that had been put there about a year earlier by some local entrepreneurs in partnership with Microsoft. And the technology is called TV white spaces. Um, what that does quite simply is it uses a radio spectrum that's normally used to deliver TV signals. It uses that radio spectrum to deliver Wi-Fi. And it's very, very powerful radio spectrum. What I mean by that is the Wi-Fi that you have at home, you know, the, the hub or the router that you have at home has, if you're lucky, about a 15 meter radius. This technology has a 15 kilometer radius, which means the day that thing was switched on, 30,000 people suddenly had high-speed internet access. It means that students at that school will, will be, you know, the, the first students will, uh, from that school to go to university because they now have access to all the things we take for granted, like Bing and Google and YouTube and Wikipedia and the Khan Academy. And literally the principal of the school said, you know, I can tell you from the day you switch this on to today, the grades of this school have just gone up and up and up. And so then you draw that back to, well, why were we there stood in this field with our CEO on the day we were launching Windows 10? And it was all about the mission statement, because if you go back to that mission statement, it's to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. And like, that is it. Easily the best, most unbelievable story I've ever had the chance to tell. And it just, it was like the mission statement in one photograph. That's brilliant. I, I love that. And I loved it when you, when I heard you tell it this time, as well as the, the, the previous time. Um, we can go a couple of different routes here, but I've got a couple of thoughts, just uh, memories, actually. I forgot, but the, the contrast between where the culture is now and where it at least was perceived to be, you know, 
many years ago is is so stark and i think the mission has played a huge part of that um and that mission is i mean you, you get the right mission and then of course you link it every story back to it there's an emotional a huge emotional um response reaction response right um and i think that's a key key part to stories right um not just in trying to help people do something because of the story but not even think differently but just feel different first and i think that's what you've just described um but my memory goes back to um my brother, actually, one of my brothers spoke at Microsoft. I would love to listen to this talk, by the way, if it was still in your archives. Uh, the title was Why the World Hates Microsoft. And it, at, it was at Microsoft, and it was to all, the whole uh, Microsoft Legal Council. Um, and it was apparently very highly right, watched very you know, high, highly that, that year. But I'd love to listen to it again, see, see whether any of that is still well, not still true, but does it still resonate that that was true at the time? Um, I don't know if you were there, but I think it was maybe 2003. I don't know. I think you were there. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I don't. Uh, <laughs> it's I can go back and read headlines, right? Even from 2012, there was a seminal story in some ways in in Vanity Fair that was it was brutal to read. It was called Microsoft Lost Decade. Um, but it was also not untrue parts of it. You know, there's parts of it that I would disagree with, but there was elements of it that were true for sure. And it's, it's you know, it's testament to a company that had grown up very, very quickly. And, you know, your culture sort of emerges organically and um, not all of it is gonna be great. And I think we've got to the point where we had said, hey, there are some things that we need to reset about our culture. And beyond the mission statement, actually, we've gone on this, pretty disciplined approach to like, how do we want to change things in the company? And Josh alluded to it earlier, but we use this framework that was called systems, symbols, behaviors, and storytelling. And so we use storytelling to drive a lot of the change. And it became a very useful device around uh, cynicism. Like whenever you make changes of that magnitude, you're going to encounter cynicism, particularly from people who've been around a long time and are holding on to systems that have served them well and made them successful and you're trying to break down those systems there's there's going to be resistance and so we learned a lot about how to counter cynicism through storytelling and specifically through repetition like i think it's one of the most obvious and useful and unused devices in storytelling is once you've said something once people are like well i need a new story it's like you don't actually if you keep telling the same story over and over and over like that story i just told you about um the photograph in nanuki i mean i told it a hundred times i still love it and every time i tell it with the exception of you guys here you know there's somebody who's going to not have heard that story and you can fall into this trap of like oh i've, I've told that story 10 times so everybody's heard it and there's seven billion people on the planet so that's never going to be true um but we we, you know, we very methodically went after the culture challenge with a variety of different techniques and also learned along the way around, you know, we, there are some things that you can't just story tell your way out of. There are things in that Vanity Fair piece, there was a very strong criticism of the reward system inside of Microsoft. And sure enough, a little over five years ago, we changed that reward system dramatically and it has had a significant impact on the culture. And so it's not just storytelling, it's a combination of storytelling we've changed some systems we've made some symbolic changes as well um and and we've uh, you know we've we've made changes around 
behaviors and language. So things like, um, you know, quite recently we sort of re, uh, restated or narrowed down actually the values of the company and said, hey, we just, there are three values that we really cherish instead of this long list of values that, you know, a few people at the company could remember because it was too long a list. I think you hit at a really important point that's I would be interesting to dive into, but um, you know, because I think a lot of people when they think about story, they probably think about if I have a good story, I can change, I'll, I can change everything, right? But I think what you're talking about, what, which I think is really, really important for people to understand, is you know, stories can serve various purposes at various different times, you know, and. Uh, but to your point, right, I think it's interesting that let's say a story serves as, as motivation and, and desire to make a change, you know, up to a certain extent, people can only who will maybe receive that story, they believe the story, they're motivated by that story, they can only go so far if, if for instance, the, 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 the processes or the systems are kind of above their head kind of holding them down. And I think that's yeah. so smart what you guys did. And and, and changing the like because you're reinforcing those behaviors that are reinforced with the story through the right re, you know year-end process reward system and i think that's incredible yeah like i'll give you a perfect example of that right is we talked one of our we did we created this mission statement and then we then we laid out five cultural attributes for the company which was growth mindset customer obsessed diverse and inclusive um uh making a difference and um customer obsessed um, God, it would be bad if I couldn't remember those. But we did a lot of storytelling around One Microsoft. And the idea of One Microsoft was instead of, you know, in places in the company where fiefdoms had built up, or you could say silos had built up, how do you break those down? And there's only so much of that that you can do through storytelling. What you need to do is also make systems changes that will reinforce that storytelling. So like literally that's what we did. We went from a reward system that rewarded individual contributions to a reward system that everybody at the company now talks about the three circles of rewards. There's individual contributions, building on the ideas of others and building on the success of others um, or, or supporting the ideas of others. And that has become the combination of the two things is we could have kept talking about one Microsoft until we were blue in the face. And some people would have gone, yeah, 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 that's a bunch of words. I'm just going to keep doing my individual hero work and I'll get rewarded for it. But when you, you do the storytelling and you marry it up with the systems change, that's where you get the real impact. Yeah. So do you look at yourself now? Um, how many years into it are you now with, uh, uh, you know, with this, with the new mission and everything like that? How many years? A little over six years. Satya was, uh, Satya became six, CEO in February, 2014. And the mission statement, I think we, we worked on around the middle of that year. So it's probably, you know, it's in the six year range. Okay. So how do, yeah, I'm interested. How do you look at your role now? Is it part historian, part investigative journalist as well? Like, I mean, also reminding people of kind of where we've been and where not only, you know, where we're going, but also I think there's, there's still stuff to be curious about now and, and what stories. So, you know, what kind of stories are you telling now and, and what stories do you see yourself telling, you know, in a year from now or two years from now, now that you're kind of getting beyond that, that, that moment. I think my job now is, um, you know, a lot of my job, frankly, is helping to lead a team. Uh, so mm. I probably don't do as much storytelling personally as I used to. Um, and, you know, I have other ways to express that. I send this weekly email that I sent a few hours ago called the Friday thing, which I've been sending for every Friday for the last 12 and a half years. 
um, which now posts on LinkedIn as well. So you can track it down on LinkedIn. Um, but I think, you know, one way I would describe my role now is sort of, uh, I'll call myself a curious curator. That okay. I'm in this position where it's really sort of privileged position where lots of stories find me. And so I, as a good example, earlier this week, I got an email from a, a friend of our friend of our family, uh, my wife and I, who is an architect who now works or has worked for the last 10 plus years for the, uh, for the United Nations. It's currently stationed in, in Kenya, actually, um, funnily enough. But he said, hey, I've got this really cool story I think you should know about. And it's some colleagues of his in the UN, the UN Habitat team, and they're using Minecraft, which is a Microsoft product, to help local communities in often war-torn places or places that have been hit by natural disaster, um, help them rebuild public spaces. And in particular, what they're doing with this technology is they're bringing together typically groups that normally don't come together. And that could be local um, civic organizations or public organizations with you know, local groups of, um, of women who have never been invited to participate in this type of activity before, like designing their public space. So what they do is they get together or sometimes it's kids who just, you know, they never thought about a career in architecture or sometimes it's people who've never used a computer before because they've just never had access to it. And they, they show up, they show them Minecraft and they invite them in Minecraft to rebuild a public space or to design a public space. So they design it together and then they literally go and rebuild these things. And it's like, that is unbelievable. Talk about like the mission statement again, empower every person or organization on the planet to achieve more. And so I'm now in like the privileged position where stories like that just come my way through the ether. And it's like, oh my God, like, this is just great. I just get to sit around and hear these amazing stories and then, then get to figure out like, wow, how should we go and tell this? Should we put it in a, in a keynote with Satya? Should we write a LinkedIn post about it? You know, should we make some coffee cups about it? Um, so that's sort of the role I get to play now is um, part of the role, I would say, is this uh, curious curator. Yeah, I love that. Interestingly enough, I, I know we might want to go in a different direction, but I do want to say over the, the, uh, the interviews that we've done recently for this podcast, the, word, the curation has come up actually in all, almost all of them so far. It's really interesting. Like this idea of collecting, curating, and, and, um, and combining those things. Specifically, that was from a, an artist, Brendan Daw. And, and it's interesting you know, to hear creatively curating. I, I, I love that. But so if we were, if we were to go, um, there's probably a couple different directions that we can go for the last part of the podcast. Um, you know, we can talk about, you know, are there any other misconceptions about story? Or if you think about maybe some of the people who might be listening and, and understanding that, um, you know, there are certain things that a story can do and a story can't do, you know, and, and how might you become a better storyteller? Or, um, yeah, or maybe we can even talk about your, your, how, you, how you see culture and story fitting together so, so uniquely that it was able to do what you guys did at Microsoft. But I don't know. I think the thing I would, you know, maybe in the spirit of trying to share some practical advice of like how yeah. to become a better storyteller and I'm trying to be a better storyteller every day. And I remember some advice that was given to me and it wasn't really around storytelling, but it helped me a lot. Early in my career at Microsoft, I was trying to be a better presenter, you know, stand up on a stage type presenter. 
and I was terrible at it, like really bad. Um, it was another occasion when a week into the company, I was asked to go and give a presentation in, in Edinburgh to a bunch of customers. And I went up there and I gave this presentation and it was brutally bad. I mean, I just embarrassing. And I remember flying back from Edinburgh to London that night and thinking, well, I'm going to get fired tomorrow because that was terrible. And I literally sort of walked around the company for the next week, almost looking over my shoulder, thinking someone's going to tap me on the shoulder any minute and say, you are useless, get out of here. And they didn't. And so I sort of vowed to myself that I wouldn't let that happen to myself again. And I would want to become a better presenter. I had this really great coach at the time, a guy called Mike Pegg. I would encourage anyone to look up his stuff on the web. He's a brilliant coach and gives a lot of his stuff away for free. And I said to Mike, you know, how can I become better at this? Because it's going to be really important for me to be successful at this company. And he said, Steve, go and study at the feet of the masters. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, where do you think, where do you think you can find the best presentations? And I was like, oh. And that was what really introduced me to TED. And I went and watched TED and I sort of lined up the top 10 videos of TED and I watched them over and over again. And what I really concentrated on was Sir Ken Robinson's talk about the schools kill creativity. Um, you know, sadly, we lost Sir Ken a month or two ago, um, fellow Liverpudlian. And that continues to be like my favorite talk to show people because he just, his storytelling in it is brilliant. You know, he tells these just really fun stories about his family's move to the US. And he tells this story about, you know, his son showing up in the, uh, in the, um, in a play. And he's just, he tells a great story across the arc of the whole talk, but peppers it with micro stories within it. Anyway, my point being that um, that is a great place to sort of build and hone the craft of storytelling is to go and look at great storytellers. Another one is just to, um, you know, I, I have this phrase I've used recently around read widely and share generously. Like one of the things I think is incredibly important for storytelling is continue to read. Like it's, it's we live in a very visual world now and visual storytelling is I think incredibly important but reading and reading very intentionally, very widely, and then sharing what you read with others, I think are, are two important things. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, lo love that. Um, well, in wrapping up, um, this has been a great conversation, and I wish we had more time even to discuss, you know, the change of performance at Microsoft and how that, you know, how you supported and how you strategize the story and the change of that and maintaining it. And I'm sure that will probably could be a really great long discussion, actually. Um, but um, you mentioned the books, reading books. Uh, what's your last book or what's the book you're reading right now? I'm sort of, I'm always reading a few different books at the same time, but mm -hmm. I'm, at the moment I'm reading, um, I'm reading a book about from Geraint Thomas, uh, which is about climbing hills on a bike. Geraint Thomas, who, for those who don't know him, Geraint was the uh, Tour de France winner two years ago, a Welshman. And uh, he's just, it's a really fun book just because I'm, I'm getting out and riding my bike a lot during, um, during the sort of lockdown and the pandemic. So I'm reading that. I'm reading uh, a book to my kids, which I forget the title of, but I, I've run a, read a ton of books from, there's a company based out of London uh, called The School of Life and their collection of books is just fantastic. And they're, it's, um, they're very, the foundation of a lot of their books is philosophy, which I've never really thought of myself as somebody who reads philosophy, but it's philosophy in a very accessible way 
And then just on storytelling more specifically, you know, the book that I'm not reading, but I encourage anybody to read who's interested in storytelling is resonates by my good friend, Nancy Duarte, because I think it's the best book on storytelling out there. She's done a number of different books and she's got newer books than that, but resonates by Nancy is, is terrific. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to make a, 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 a plug uh, for, for Josh. We've mentioned TEDx a few times, right? You've been on TEDx. Josh has also been on TEDx. So if our listeners, if you have not listened to it, if Steve, you haven't seen it, um, a, great, uh, a great session last year about um, curiosity and storytelling. It's, it's awesome. Um, I'm going to also ask you, and we tend to do this at every episode, something uh, unexpected, something that maybe people don't know about you. Um, and I think apparently it's something to do with a jet plane. Uh, can you tell us more? Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about this, but my kids were asking me something like this a week or so ago, and it just it popped into my brain. I'm like, oh, I, I barrel rolled a jet plane once. Um, and the it was an offsite that I was doing when I worked in the UK for Microsoft with a local, with a, a partner that I worked with a company called DAT. And the guy who owned the company, he owned, he owned a plane or he owned, yeah, he owned a plane. He owned an ex Russian jet, like a fighter jet. Don't ask me why. And we went for an offsite one day and he had this jet there and he'd invited some, some other folks he knew had planes. Anyway, I ended up in this very, very old, uh, British plane with an old RAF pilot and you would sit side by side in this plane. It was like a bench. Um, so I sat side by side and this guy's flying the plane along and um, a single jet engine. And he said, you want to fly it? And I was like, all right, yeah. And he's like, well, just take the stick. So I'm flying away and you know, you don't have to do much because he's really controlling it with his feet. And I'm just holding the stick and going a bit left and a bit right. And he says, you want a barrel rolling? And I was like, okay, I mean, didn't really think that was going to be a thing. And so he basically taught me very quickly how to barrel roll this jet plane. Um, that feels like a lifetime ago, but yeah. <laughs> very good. That's, that's amazing. How can people, if they, if they want to get in touch with you or, or connect with you, what's the best way if, do you want that? It, you know, what's the best way to do that if you do want that? But yeah. Yeah, I would say, you know, normal places you will find me. I'm, um, I'm on Twitter. My handle generally is at SteveCLA, which is also my email alias at Microsoft. Um, but I'm on Twitter. I don't, I'm not as active on Twitter as I have been in the past. I'm more of a, an observer these days than a tweeter, um, but more active on Instagram. And then also on LinkedIn, I find I spend a lot more of my time on LinkedIn and I mentioned this, um, this newsletter or this email I send every Friday that I recently started to publish onto LinkedIn as well. So you can find me there. Uh, this thing is called the Friday thing. And I just, as I said, I published it a few hours ago, my latest edition, and it includes a great story around COBOL programming, which is another part of my ancient history. A really, really great story from Vanity Fair this month that Nick Bilton wrote about Elon Musk, which is just a brilliant read. Um, and then a really cool video of behind the scenes when Cuba Gooding Jr. won his Oscar in 96. And he was awesome on stage, but the behind the scenes production of that thing is like unbelievably brilliant. 
Thanks for hanging out with us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Swell Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, sign up to our newsletter at theswellpod.com, and get in on the conversation through all major socials at The Swell Pod. We'll see you next time.